صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Joining us today is Dr. Mark Mohanad Ayash, who was born and raised in Silwan al-Quds, Jerusalem, before immigrating to Canada, where he is now an Associate Professor of Sociology at Mount Royal University. He's the author of a few books and a frequent commentator on Palestine, and he's currently writing a book on the colonial sovereignty in Palestine, Israel. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for joining us again. Great to speak to you. My pleasure. Thank you, Nasser. I'm very excited because, you know, I'm going to take all of the credit because the censure of University of Toronto, the case there we spoke about last time with uh, Dr. Valentina Azarova, the censure of the University of Toronto was a massive success. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think you should take the credit. Uh, We did discuss it that day and, uh, you know, the victory came not long after that. So let the bells ring out. Palestine remembered from Australia, we can change the world. Give us an update. Mark, you know, what's happened and, you know, the ramifications? Look, it was, as people who were involved in that campaign perfectly captured it, it was a bittersweet victory. You know, the the censure did manage to force the University of Toronto to publicly state that they were in the wrong, which was not a small feat. Uh, That was quite quite a thing to celebrate. It is very rare for a university like the University of Toronto to admit this kind of wrongdoing. Now, they they didn't use language that we would have all liked to hear, but, you know, to offer her the job again is an admission of wrongdoing. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have done that. So, and 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 it is important to remember that the, univers- the University of Toronto, when this issue first was brought up, they were refusing to do that. They, they thought they stuck to their claim that they had done nothing wrong and that Dr. Azarova did not meet certain immigration requirements or whatever other uh, excuse they, they threw out there. And, and it took a lot of work, uh, a lot of uh, action or a lot of organizing by University of Toronto faculty members and others to make sure that they are, in fact, held accountable. So, so the fact that the job was re-offered to her, Dr. Azarova, is, as far as I'm concerned, an admission of guilt. Now, the deep-seated anti-Palestinian racism within universities in that, that was visible in that hiring process, the influence of donors on, on, the, on the hiring process, none of those things have been addressed. So that's why it's bittersweet. So, so there's still a lot of work ahead. There's much to be done. We, we have no guarantees that something like this isn't already happening this year, for all we know, uh, and, and or won't happen in the future. But this has sent, I thought, a clear message to universities you're not going to just get away with it. That people are watching, people are documenting, and uh, people are taking a stand. And that includes uh, CAUT, which we'll talk more about later, because they continue to take a very courageous and principled stand on these issues. So we should just talk about that donor influence. I mean, we spoke about the deep Zionist connections of the board and you know the, the leaked um, sort of correspondence and then that really ordinary investigation that such a mealy-mouthed outcome. Do you don't think that perhaps... Uh, once bitten, twice shy? 
I mean, you would hope, you would hope, but but the problem is, is that in order to ensure that sorts of things don't happen again at institutions as large as University of Toronto and other university institutions, you need policy. You need, uh, I think, stricter language, stricter policies on the academic autonomy from donor influence that all academic hirings and promotions and, you know, all anything that involves the academic process needs to be fully autonomous from any outside influence, whether it's donors or political parties or political organizations or a nation state. And I do think that, you know, sort of more explicit policy needs to be put in place in order to protect from this happening again, because so long as that isn't the case, there is no guarantee that this won't happen again, unfortunately. But from afar, you know, watching what's happening in Canada, you know, we can't but be filled with hope for the future. Uh, the situation today in Canada, in Toronto, with some high school students who are under attack for standing up for Palestine. Something like 250 kids staged a walkout of their classrooms and they were chanting in the street, free Palestine and hey, hey, TDSB, Palestine will be free. Of course, they're all anti-Semitic and um, all the usual charges came down from people like the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Centre and the pro-Israeli government lobby groups, etc., tweeting about the anti-Semitism of these students. Can you give us a bit of a background on that case and what exactly is happening there? Uh, well, first of all, these students are incredible. Uh, there's really no other way, way to describe their courage, their intelligence, their commitment, their, their spirit their organizational skills. I mean, it's it's remarkable. It, it really is. Uh, we're talking about high school students here who are making an incredible impact on how the TDSB is approaching this issue. Now, we're, we've not seen the results yet, but regardless of results, honestly, the fact that they had undertaken this uh, protest is, is so impressive. And I just have nothing but praise to give to those to those young people they they're amazing and the ugliness of the response against them just shows you that there there is no line that the opposition uh, won't cross uh, labeling these high school students anti-semitic for these actions is so disgusting is so laughable as well is so idiotic uh, and so clearly and explicitly, you know, disingenuous in its claims. Let me just read you some of these, uh, the, the nine demands that these brilliant students have put together. This is quite amazing. I mean, uh, these demands, when you look at them, uh, there's nine of them, they're all great, but I'm just going to read three of them that really stand out to me, but they're all great. Like I said, again, it's just astonishing that they're high school students. I mean, I've, I've seen educators and adults who struggle with coming up, uh, coming up with these kinds of very concrete and specific demands. So one of them is adopt a definition of anti-Semitism that is decolonial and does not perpetuate unfair power relationships between a state and its occupied people. The IHRA definition dehumanizes Palestinians and has been rejected by many university faculty associations for this reason. That's, that's uh, their third demand. I'm going to jump to number eight. Ensure the safety of any Palestinian students and staff who may face backlash, unfair accusations, and treatment for expressing their cultural identity. And number nine, their last one, empathize with Palestinian students and staff understand that they are experiencing trauma and are heavily affected by these issues. Do not silence them 
but instead seek to help and support them by sending out an abundance of sincere resources. Let them just say Palestine. Wow. I mean, these could be written by, by scholars. These students should be teaching their teachers and the TDSB board on how to implement real policies on equity and anti-racism and decolonialism. They're not the students. They're the real teachers here. And the TDSB and all of their teachers should be listening to them and learning from them, as other people should as well. The fact that they are able to use decolonial anti-racist language in very, you know, deep ways. Not, I'm not talking about your uh, corporate type of anti-racism, your state type of anti-racism, which is shallow and, and wouldn't withstand the, the slightest academic scrutiny. They're referring to real deep knowledge of these issues, real deep understandings of decolonial practice, uh, anti-racist practice, equity practices. And it would be an absolute shame and a dark spot on the TDSB if they don't take these demands seriously, if they don't work as hard as they can to meet those demands. We're not seeing that so far, but I, I do sincerely hope that these teachers and these TDSB staff members and board members are listening very carefully to what these courageous students are not just asking of them, but are teaching them because they have a lot of learning to do. The TDSB has an, a deeply entrenched structure of anti-Palestinian racism. It, it, we've seen it with the treatment of Javier de Vila. We've seen it in the treatment of Desmond Cole. We've seen it in these uh, in the schools that fall under the Toronto District School Board and other school boards in Canada. We've seen it in the treatment of Palestinian students and educators for decades now. Students can't even wear a kafia to class without the teacher telling them, you've got to take that off. That's a hate symbol. I mean, how ludicrous is this? So serious, the, the TDSB, TDSB needs to take a very serious, serious look at themselves. And, and they need to take these students as their guide. Absolutely. So we should clear up, in case people don't know what the TDSB is, the Toronto District School Board. Yes. You're joined today by Dr. Mark Ayesh from Canada, who's foremost expert in colonialism, settler colonialism. Mark, the Desmond Cole case, let's speak about him, because one of the things that the, the students actually demanded was an apology to Desmond. Yes. He's a prominent activist in Toronto, you know, being got a whole chunk of hate and racism directed at him from the lobby and, you know, particular is allegedly a journalist, Sue Ann Levy, with the Food Vendors case. We might touch on that in a second, but tell us a bit more about Desmond Cole. So uh, Desmond Cole is a very well-known uh, activist, author, journalist, who's been writing about anti-Black racism in Canada and beyond for many, many years. He's worked very hard on, on anti-Black racism across a whole variety of issues, both in Toronto, in Canada, and, and globally as well. And he's someone who is very well learned and very well experienced in anti-racist politics, in practice, in anti-racist philosophy and theory and thinking. And usually when you have someone with that kind of deep understanding of anti-racism, they'll see right through the uh, superficial talking points that you hear from, from Zionist groups about, you know, Palestinians being anti-Semites and all of that nonsense. In an equity talk that he was given, giving to the Toronto District School Board, he mentioned the phrase, free Palestine. And, oh, uh, what? They, they, what? Sorry? 
What? Free Palestine? I, I know, I know. How, how dare he include the freedom of Palestinians in an equity talk? <laughs> and that's all he said. Just free Palestine. Just free Palestine. And that invited all of the disruptions to his talk, all of the uh, false uh, accusations and mislabeling of, of Desmond Cole and his comments as anti-Semitic. We know, we know the routine here. We've heard it a thousand times. You know, I've written about this in The Breach, and I absolutely love his response in the video to that. And, and, and I quote from Desmond Cole here, and I did quote it in my piece as well. If people interpret free Palestine as being violent, it is because they are benefiting from Palestinians being unfree, period. In the same way that if you answer Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, you must have some investment in Black lives being more undervalued. Otherwise, you wouldn't quarrel with the statement, end quote. And, you know, I can't think of a better answer myself to these ridiculous accusations that, that he's had to put up with and still is dealing with. Um, and, and this is important to underscore. Folks like uh, Desmond Cole, like Javier de Villa, who's also a very well-respected anti-racist, uh, decolonial educator, an educator who's committed to equity issues. Both of them are still facing the attack from uh, Zionist organizations um, and the TDSB board for being quote unquote anti-Semitic. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, all, it's always important to remember that, the, you know, we're talking here about human beings who are taking these principled uh, positions, but you know, it often comes at a high cost of, uh, of their mental health and, and, and their well-being and their jobs and their, their livelihoods. And, you know, I think we are at a point where I think the majority of people understand that anti-Semitism has been fully weaponized by these organizations through things like the IHRA. And I, again, I, I emphasize courage here because that's what is needed is, is people to have the courage to come out and speak. Uh, people like Desmond Cole, people like Javier Davila, people like those students, those incredibly courageous students, uh, many educators who have stepped up as well and have taken very courageous positions on this. It does, unfortunately, it does take courage to speak truth to power. I wish it was a simple thing for people to speak truth to power, but you know, that courage should not be taken for granted though, or wasted quite frankly. So more people need to jump on here and more people need to add their voice and not be afraid to say the word Palestine, not to be, not to be afraid to say free Palestine. If we're, you know, the TDSB's uh, board was doing their regular both sidism talk in response to this event. And as I argued in my piece as well, they've made it clear that uh, Desmond's speech was not conducive to quote unquote, you know, respectful dialogue. So, so to me, what they're really saying that's not a progressive position. You know, they present it as if that's a progressive position to want, you know, fair and respectful dialogue. But their idea of respectful dialogue clearly does not include freedom of Palestine. So, so what kind of dialogue is that when, when you know, how respectful or reciprocal is that when you won't accept free Palestine? If the freedom of Palestinians is a problem for you, you have the problem. Mark, a high-level uh, commentary on the on the food vendors case. Now, this was a food vendor in Canada who, during May's massacre, put a um, sign up saying "Zionists not welcome." And you know, the Anti-Defamation League, a terrorist organization in the United States, uh, you know, a horrible group of right-wing fascist Jewish and Israel supporters, started a campaign against her. They graffitied the store. Ended up uh, getting you know, Uber Eats to not to service her business. Um, 
pay platforms, uh, canceled their contracts with her, drove the business to, to close. And then she ended up with a court case that about positioning Zionism as discrimination, anti under the anti-discrimination type law there, that Zionists were in fact a race. And she said, Jews are welcome, just not Zionists. Um, that court case happened a couple of weeks ago and she was uh, vindicated. No apology yet from the lobby for all the hurt and distress, but that's another little win, yeah? Uh, yes, and I can't speak to the details of the case. I'm not a lawyer, sorry, or a legal yeah. expert in these matters. So uh, I can't really speak to the details of the case. But overall, yes, from a sort of a bigger picture, a higher level sort of look at this. Yes, it is a win. And, you know, we're seeing this more and more where people are now afraid are, are starting to be afraid. I've noticed this a lot. People are afraid to use the word Zionism and Zionist. The Zionism and Zionist is Zionism is a political ideology. It's it's absolutely like insane to me that that has become somehow a, a dangerous word to use. That you're somehow going to be accused of anti-Semitism just because you're using using the word Zionism and Zionists. First of all. Not all Zionists are Jews. <laughs> Many Zionists, in fact, are Christian Zionists. And you find plenty of those and plenty of Zionist organizations that are driven by Christians in, in North America and elsewhere. So this notion that Zionists are a race or a people is, it, I mean, it, it, there's no historical or scholarly backing to this whatsoever. It's a purely a strategic kind of rhetoric that is, whose purpose is only one thing. The purpose of that rhetoric is to silence and erase Palestinians and Palestine, and specifically the Palestinian critique of Israel and Zionism. That's the whole point. And let me just stress this. Anti-Semitism is real. I've seen it in action. I, have, I know of many stories of real anti-Semitism. And as many Jewish groups like Independent Jewish Voices in Canada, who I've had the honor of working with on numerous occasions, they have repeated this message over and over again. This weaponization of anti-Semitism is hurting the real struggle against real anti-Semitism. That's a fact. That's that, that's really critical to underscore in all of this. So th there are many reasons to oppose this weaponization of anti-Semitism. Now, a huge win during the week. The Canadian Association of University Teachers all voted that they didn't want the IHRA imposed upon them. That is a fantastic, fantastic achievement. Congratulations to the team. Absolutely. So th this news broke today. Uh, they voted today. CAUT uh, had its council meeting, November council meeting, and all delegates unanimously voted on a resolution that very clearly stated that the CAUT opposes the adoption of the IHRA at all Canadian universities and colleges. So let that sink in. That's all 100% of delegates, which is which are delegates from every single Canadian university and college that is a member of CAUT, which is, I believe, the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them, all voted, all sent a clear message. The IHRA definition is not a definition that is actually combating anti-Semitism. It is a definition that is there to censor, intimidate, and harass. And that it, it is an attack on academic freedom. That's what the largest body representing faculty associations in Canada just told uh, the Canadian government, Canadian provincial government, federal government, 
and any university president or university provost or dean who, who is thinking about adopting the IHRA, they should all know that faculty associations, faculty members are all united in the fight against that, that they all refuse the adoption of the IHRA at universities and colleges in Canada. This is huge. And there's been a lot of activity in Canada uh, over the last year or so to ask faculty associations to take that stance. I was part of that campaign. We had uh, 32 faculty associations and unions, uh, each individually passing their own motions, opposing the adoption of the IHRA. So in, in individual associations were already seeing the threat to academic freedom from that. They were already seeing the IHRA for what it actually is. And uh, that groundwork, I believe, played its, its role in encouraging associations to bring this forward to CAUT as an entire body. And we saw them taking a principled stance today, which again goes to my earlier point. I think that a lot of people, more people than we often think, already see through the superficial talking points of the Zionist organizations that promote the IHRA. They see through it, which was clearly on display today. They, they understand that this isn't really about combating anti-Semitism because all of these associations, as they should be, are in fact committed to fighting against real anti-Semitism, real anti-racism, whether it's anti-Black racism, anti-Palestinian racism, anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Muslim racism, anti-Jewish racism. These associations are committed. The CAUT as a body is committed to that fight. And they took this stand is based on their principles that this fight against all these forms of racism is critical. I think this sends a clear message, like I said, to, in Canada, but I also hope that that message reaches beyond. I hope universities in Australia uh, listen to this. I hope universities in the UK are listening to this, in the US, in Germany, in France, everywhere. I hope they're all listening to this. And I hope that this becomes a, a snowball effect here. There's nothing special about Canada. There's nothing special about the CAUT. All they did was look at an issue in a very objective way. And they took a principled position on based on the facts and the evidence. The facts and the evidence are very clear. The IHRA is, is a tool uh, for governments to suppress academic freedom and specifically to attack the Palestinian critique and anti-racist and decolonial critiques of the Israeli state. Yeah, brilliant. And 100% of delegates, I've missed that point. That is a phenomenal... Unanimous. Obviously, tomorrow's newspapers there and the Twitter sphere will be going off about Canada is uh, about to fall into a great big hole of anti-Semitism because we won't adopt the IHRA. I think they, they will certainly uh, try to, to paint it that way. But I, I think we need to start to understand that not many people are buying it. I, I really do believe that. I mean, th this vote shows that. I don't think any, anyone at CUT is blind to the fact that this kind of talking points are going to be directed at them. I mean, they faced that with Azarova. When they unanimously voted for the censure of the University of Toronto, people were calling them the next day in national newspapers, calling their decision anti-Semitic. And you know what? Not many people agreed with that. Not many people listened to it. So I say, let them. Uh, let them write whatever they want to write tomorrow. And we should understand that not many people are buying their weak talking points anymore. We should keep going. We should just keep stating our the truth. Uh, because I do believe that the Palestinian uh, critique is much closer to reality, is much closer to the truth 
because I, I do philosophically believe that nothing can capture, capture the truth in its totality, but, but there, you can evaluate as a scholar, uh, that's your job to evaluate which, which accounts and which critiques get closer to that truth and reality. And I, in my mind, there's no doubt that the Palestinian critique comes way closer than these superficial uh, 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 rhetorics that we hear from these kinds of groups, which are, which are entirely baseless and, and, and in certain cases outright delusional. Um, and, and so, so yeah, let them, let them scream and shout. But uh, I think we should understand that not that many people are listening. And the reality is that this is a, a distraction from real anti-Semitism, as you said before, the fact that you know, Absolutely. it's just an overreach to, to get to this point. Mark, just very quickly, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Benny Gantz in executive order or military order designated six magnificent uh, leading Palestinian human rights organizations as terrorist organizations. And the reality is, you know, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs has been running that delegitimization campaign. Part of it is the IHRA out in the West. The other part of it is actually in Palestine, whether it's 48 or 67 Palestine. Designation of these six leading Palestinian human rights groups as terrorists, number one, to make it harder for them to get funds. But number two, and I'd like your comment on this, it's about ensuring that the voices of those human rights organisations don't get out to the West. So we're criminalising even Palestinians talking about Palestine. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you uh, completely. That That is clearly, obviously, the goal here. Um, is to is to uh, continue to. I think what's happening here is that Israel is is starting to panic in in terms of its PR camp, and they understand in especially after the events this May, thanks to the incredible uh, work of Palestinian journalists and activists, and just regular people on the ground documenting things on their phones, uh, sharing them on social media, doing that work of getting the Palestinian story uh, out to the world. I think they're in full panic mode that they can't compete with, with the Palestinians on substance. They know. They know that what they're doing <laughs> is a crime. They know that. They do understand that on some level. They might not fully understand it in a way that you and I would understand it, but they understand it on some level. And because they're losing that, their only response is to completely erase our voice. So as they've always done, Israel uses violence, uh, whether it's legal violence or physical violence, there are still both forms of violence. And, and in this case, they're using a lot of legal types of violence to silence and suppress the stories coming out of Palestine that are being shared with the rest of the world because they have no substantive response to anything that we say. They just don't. So their only response, the only thing that they know how to do is violence against Palestinians, the elimination and erasure of Palestine and Palestinians. That is the entire animating goal behind this latest move. I think more and more people are starting to see through that. That The seeing through that started in May, it has not stopped. I will have a, 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 an opinion piece coming out precisely on this uh, topic, uh, hopefully in the next uh, week or two. But it asks, it asks a simple question, what is Israel's word worth? And the, the short answer to that is that Israel's word is worth everything and nothing. It is worth everything because it has real effects 
you know, real impacts on Palestinian lives and livelihoods. There, Israel's word that these organizations are now quote unquote terrorist organization will have devastating impacts on those organizations and on, on their ability to communicate the story of Palestine to the world. So in that sense, Israel's word is everything, but it is also nothing. It is nothing in the sense that it has no real substance. It is a purely strategic word. It has no connection to the reality of violence. I hope that eventually the nothing part will catch up to the everything part and chip away at it and, and lead us to a day where Israel's word will no longer have that devastating impact on Palestinian lives. Fantastic. Dr. Mark Hayesh, thanks so very much for joining us. We look forward to uh, speaking to you again soon. Merry Christmas, although it's a little bit away yet, but we're in December now. So take care and, and thanks for speaking to us. Thank you very much, Nasser. It was, it was my pleasure to be on this show with you again. Well, hopefully we'll have the same success as our last show. And that was the fantastic Associate Professor Mark Muhammad Ayash. He's an Associate Professor of Sociology at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Canada. A really fantastic Palestinian. Thanks for joining us today. And a big shout out to all of the attendees at the Run for Palestine in Melbourne last Sunday. Close to 300 people came along. I think we raised almost $15,000 for Olive Kids, which was great. And a super shout out to those attendees in Perth and Canberra on the Sunday and in Hobart on the Saturday. So fantastic run for Palestine around Australia. We look forward to next year being a bigger and better event, including Brisbane and Sydney. Make sure you tune in next week for a special edition of Palestine Remembered, where we've got the audio from the Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize and the presentation to Uncle Dr. Gary Foley. Something not to be missed. So be sure to tune in next week. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.